it's over 9,000! Welcome, Super Elite Warriors, to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host... This is the Bikini. And we're still just floating around in space, and as we like to do, at least I've decided, whenever we're having some downtime, let's do something a little different from the usual, and reach out to a friend... To join us, and we're going to call out on our scouter now. Uh, Derek, can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right. Uh, joining us today on Final Forum, we have Derek Padula, the world's first and foremost professional Dragon Ball scholar. Derek is the author of several nonfiction books on the Dragon Ball franchise including the Dragon Ball Culture series, which we've mentioned a few times before on this podcast, and the books Dragon Soul, 30 Years of Dragon Ball Fandom, and It's Over 9,000 When World's Views Collide. He is the creator of the blog The Tao of Dragon Ball, which features a lot of knowledge about the Dragon Ball universe, as well as hosting some fan-created manga. And Derek is one of the co-creators of Dragon Ball Z, Life of Hope, a live-action dbz web series that went viral in 2015 and has amassed over 35 million views to date he's been writing about dragon ball since 2003 has sold thousands of books and has had millions of visitors to his site and we're super excited to have him join us derek thanks for being here uh thank you for having me it's uh it's a pleasure to be here it's quite the impressive resume (laughs) thanks um so derek one thing we talked about when we first started the show is that we shared our stories of how we came to Dragon Ball to kind of, you know, contextualize it for people. And then we found out, you know, most people probably have a similar story. But, um, you know, for my part, I was actually at a at a sleepover at a friend's house. And uh, this show came on like a late night, probably tsunami type of airing. But uh, it was the episode where Goku went Super Saiyan for the first time, except I walked out of the mm. room like right before that happened. And when I came back in, he had gold hair. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> the main character's yeah. hair changes color from scene to scene. Um, but I- I'd like to hear your story and how you first came to become a Dragon Ball fan. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Everybody has a Dragon Ball origin story. For me, it was on Toonami 
but it was uh, in the afternoon block and I had come home from school and uh, I'd seen the commercials beforehand, but I, I watched it right from the get-go with Raditz showing up and the big fight between him and Goku and Piccolo and I was just blown away by all the action. And this was with the Pioneer, you know, dub with Ocean dub and the, uh, the original cast uh, in, in America. That, it just, everything about it spoke to me. I loved the martial arts uh, because I grew up watching Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee and I loved the, the Eastern use of like this, this energy that was coming out of their bodies. And I liked the humor. I liked the colors, just how bright it was and the, like the full saturation of colors and the sensibility of like this, this combination of different uh, elements. I, I didn't really understand it the way that I do now where I can see it as different cultures fusing together. But it was like this, this Eastern and Western, just, I don't know if melange is the right word, but it had all these different elements that came together and it really appealed to me for some reason. So, uh, I started watching it every day. Then it sort of became an obsession where, uh, my friends and I would watch it. And one of them said, Hey man, why don't, why don't we live this? And I was like, what do you mean live it? He said, well, let's go take a martial arts class. And it never occurred to me before to do that, even though I loved martial arts films. So I I didn't really know what that would entail. I, I'd grown up playing team sports like soccer and, and um, baseball and football. And, um, and I got into lacrosse. But this was like an individual thing. And I, I was kind of a, a little nervous about it. But he said, hey, my mom will drive us. You don't have to do anything. They have a free <laughs> class. Let's just go. I need somebody to go with. Come on. So I'm like, all right, fine. So we went to this place called Chan's Kung Fu and it was amazing. It absolutely blew me away. I felt like I was Krillin. I was doing all the deep stances, you know, the horse stance and the cross stance, the hanging crane stance, all these things, jumping around and throwing punches and kicks. And I loved it. And I came home, I told my parents, I said, I, I want to do this. And so we, I signed up for three months and they were on board and then it just became my life. And I was watching DBZ every day, going and training in Kung Fu for like three hours a day, then coming home and training some more. And I was like Goku, just like workaholic when it came to training. And it started to affect my my personality and, and improve my, my outlook on life. And it, it just completely transformed my life. And I can go into uh, more details about it, but... That's really my origin story. As I found Dragon Ball when I was uh, a young man, I was um, early high school, and it just changed everything. I'm going to make my kids listen to that story because uh, that's inspirational. <laughs> I, I tried to take them to like a karate class one time, and uh, I had like a free week of it or something. And like every day when they were there, they liked it, but every time getting there, they cried like the whole way there. Oh so. no. <laughs> Um, but no, that's really cool. I, I would like to hear a little bit, you know, you talk about it, it changed kind of your life or your perceptions. I mean, I, I, I've listened to one of your other interviews, so I kind of have an idea of, of what, what you're, you're alluding to, but I would, I would like you to share it with, with our listeners actually, cause I think it's a really good, uh, mentality actually. Okay, sure. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Before I became the Dragon Ball scholar, I was just a regular Dragon Ball fan. I was depressed. I was nerdy. I got picked on and bullied at school and uh, I was into things that other kids didn't think was cool. 
back then. Um, anime is acceptable now. It's mainstream. Kids grow up with it. It's there right when they start watching TV and it, they can stream it whenever they want. But when I was a kid, you had to go to these weird like boutique stores. They were like uh, kind of far off the beaten path and it was expensive. Or you had to go to Chinatown and get uh, bootleg dubs mm-hmm. with like... <laughs> Cantonese, you know, dubs and like really bad subtitles and things. It was a different time. And so like that stuff back then wasn't as acceptable. And um, I got bullied and I was, I became depressed and I reached the point where I didn't want to live anymore because uh, I was having trouble at home. Uh, so I was having trouble at school all day long and I felt like a prison. And then I came home and my parents were fighting and my brothers were having a hard time too. And I just felt like I had no place in in this world and i always wanted to escape so dragon ball sort of became my escape it was a place where i could go to um see bright colors and positivity and endurance and perseverance through hardships i became enamored with the philosophy of goku and this idea of never giving up even when you're getting beaten up you still keep fighting and eventually you get through it and that was instrumental because I reached a point where I wanted to kill myself and I didn't have anybody to turn to. uh, So I was going to go through with it. And I took a knife from the, the kitchen, you know, steak knife block and went into the bathroom, closed the door and looked into the mirror into my eyes for what I thought was going to be the last time as I held this knife to my wrist. And I thought, this is it. Like nobody wants me. I'm not accepted. I don't want to go through this pain anymore. So let's just end it. And as I was about to slice my wrist, a thought flashed through my mind that Goku wouldn't do this. Goku would survive for one more minute, one more hour, one more day. He would do whatever it took to continue fighting and persevere. And it was all I needed to put the knife down and then drop to my knees in tears. And I was like, yes, I can make it for another day. That one day is all I have to do to be more like Goku. So I did. I put the knife back. I never told anybody what happened. And then that day became a week and a month and year and 10 years and now decades. And uh, Goku his philosophy of endurance saved my life and dragon ball saved my life. I, without dragon ball, I'd be dead. And that's part of why I decided to write my books and to give back to the community is because dragon ball really saved me. And I know it's saved so many other people as well. It's a transformative life-saving series while at the same time being a series about big muscled guys screaming and punching each other. <laughs> it's it's both of those things and it's the best at both of them. Uh, and it's really a series that means a lot to me and it has a lot of heart in it. And I feel like um, at the time there was nobody talking about this type of content in the series. It was all about who can beat who in a fight, who has the biggest power level, can Goku beat Superman and all that stuff. Um, oh, which, things have really changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's still the same in that regard, but I wanted to bring something more to it and uh, my perspective on it. And so at the time, I looked online and there was nobody talking about this type of stuff. So 
I decided to write about it. And I created my website, The Tao of Dragon Ball. And uh, that's where I talk about the Taoists and Buddhists and, uh, you know, other cultural aspects of the series. Um, but that was because I, I missed a section here of this story, which is, so I survived all of that, made it through high school, finally got onto a proper path of like Kung Fu and martial arts and discipline. And it just really it changed my life. I, I got into Eastern philosophy and culture, and I made that my major at Western Michigan University, studied abroad in Beijing, China trained with the Shaolin monks. So I really became Krillin. I got the orange robes, did all that stuff. And it just, uh, it was an amazing experience. And then when I, when I came back, uh, I was seeing all of these parallels between what I was studying uh, in class and what I was seeing in, in Dragon Ball and had grown up watching. And I decided to start writing about it. And then that became some articles, which then became some books. And uh, now here I am, I have uh, eight books, with some more coming in, uh, and also available in Spanish and Italian and uh, a French one about to come out and another one in Portuguese. This Japanese cartoon made by a guy, uh, you know, who just wanted to make some silly Journey to the West adventure <laughs> uh, has completely changed my life and the lives of so many others. Yeah, that's... Um... That's really powerful but, stuff, and I'm really glad you're you're you know able to share that with us because uh, I think that hopefully if, if anyone out there is you know listening and is is feeling any of those same kind of things, I mean, you know, hopefully you know being comfortable and feeling like you can share that gives someone else inspiration to mm -hmm. one more day uh, because yeah. it's a shame when when anyone anyone takes their own life and and does that because. Uh, there's people who care about everyone and, and, you know, you never know, you could end up bringing something into the world that people really enjoy. Like the way I've have enjoyed the three of your books that I've read so far. So, Oh, thank you very much. Um, so you are, you're, you know, young guy, you get, you get into it. You, you take the, the karate, you go to, you go to China and you've talked a little, you've kind of alluded to this a little bit. But what makes you take the leap from being this fan and seeing all these parallels and things to um, to to an author? I mean, what what made you start writing about it rather than just uh, I don't know, maybe videos or or trying to share your information with with other people who are writers? And I know you have at least a little bit of a relationship with the guys at I think Kanzen Shu, like. Was it like maybe a class you took in school at some point that made you realize you had kind of a knack for writing? Um, or is it just all these hours of independent research you stored up that just, you know, via being this big of a fan really made you want to share that knowledge with the world? Mm. Or was it the the fame and the glory and the money and the women? Yeah. You know, like, like we all have. <laughs> it was that, all of that <laughs> stuff you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, no, I got into this before YouTube was a thing. There was no platform to be sitting in front of a camera and talking. So, in 2003, it was like, how am I going to do this? Well, there were websites you could go to, like Konzenshu that you mentioned. Um, it was the biggest Dragon Ball, you know, platform, the forum for um, Western fans and still is. And um, other than Reddit, perhaps. But if you, if you want like actual discussion of the series, Go to Kanzenshu because you get some you get some real in depth conversations, and it's it's great. And those guys have been working on that for decades, and uh, they do it as volunteers. I mean, it's just their group. They're really really passionate fans. Um, 
for me, I just, I have an analytical mind and I grew up with two parents who were analysts and uh, consultants, you know, and my, my brother is in, uh, the same way. And I just look at a piece of uh, content and I, I can break it down, see the patterns and I kind of, I enjoy it. So, I started to write these things down that I was seeing and I amassed so much, so much, um, I don't want to call them insights at the time. It was just like, hey, did you ever notice kind of a thing? Like, oh, those symbols on their dogies. Uh, and then what is a dogi? Uh, you know, where's that Where's that term come from? Oh, it's Japanese. Uh, then you look at the kanji and you break the kanji down into patterns. And you start to see all of these symbols and these shapes. And um, I wanted to understand it. So, I wrote those things down so that I could better understand them. And then I eventually had so much of it that I felt like, I should share this with other people because maybe this has value outside of my own pursuit of knowledge. Maybe there are other people like me who are looking for this type of knowledge. And uh, I never really thought of it as a job until um, my ex-fiance, Deborah, said, you should do this professionally. Because I had been a video game designer uh, in Los Angeles for a few years. That was my dream growing up. I always wanted to make video games. So I worked for Activision and Electronic Arts and Seven Studios, and I made some pretty cool games. It didn't really become a full, it, it, I mean, it was a career, but it wasn't a super successful path that I was following. And it, it took me a long time to transition into being a full-time author. Um, but writing my first book about Goku and Vegeta's psychology, the Dragon Ball Z, it's over 9,000 book. That one, once I started selling hundreds of copies i realized like oh there's an opportunity here there are people out there who want to learn more about this and like what was going to be one book uh the Tao of dragon ball into a seven book series became dragon ball culture which is really like a master's degree in dragon ball uh starting with the curatoriamo's life story and uh the origin of the series and journey to the west and all of these things that I've spent a lifetime studying, it sort of became my profession because I was so enamored with it. Yeah, I don't, nowadays, I guess people can say, you know what, I'm going to be this type of YouTuber or I'm going to be like a, a professional um, who focuses on Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh or something. <laughs> but, but back then, there was no such thing. And I was just sort of making it up as I, as I went along. Awesome. So I'm gonna, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit here and kind of start to focus more on the writing process itself. So essentially you become a fan, you decide you want to write a book on Dragon Ball. Did you need to do further research or were you kind of ready to go based on all the other research that you'd done over the years up to that point? Uh, no, it all requires a massive amount of research. Even if you... <laughs> think you know everything about Dragon Ball. Like, let's say you've watched every episode of the series. Okay, that's a really good start. How many times have you watched it? Have you memorized it? Have you read all of the manga chapters? Have you played all of the video games? Have you watched all of the movies? Okay, that's all good stuff. That's all consumption of official Dragon Ball content. Now, what about Akira Toriyama? Do you know what he's interested in? Have you watched the movies that he's watched that influenced Dragon Ball? Have you studied Japanese or or Chinese? Or uh, do you have a proficiency in English where you can understand the linguistic uh, 
turns of phrases that Toriyama is using or the portmanteaus that he creates with the names, all of the food-based naming conventions, uh, all of the attack names, all of the location names, uh, all the symbols on the kanji and the, and the other, you know, uniforms that the characters wear, like the gods and things like that. It just keeps going and going. And then there's also the voice acting world and the production of the series itself um, from the, the manga with Akira Toriyama's editor, Kazuhiko Torishima at Shueisha, to the Toei Animation crew with all of the producers and animators and composers and lyricists. And you have to absorb all of this information and then you have to process it and then come up with some type of original insight that readers are going to want to pay for. Uh, and then you have to form it into a cohesive narrative in a chronological format. So you start at the beginning and you work your way towards some end point uh, in an entertaining manner. So it doesn't read like a Wikipedia article. Because nobody wants to read that for no, 300 nobody pages. Nobody wants to sit and read Wikipedia. <laughs> no, not not for 300 pages, you know? And and that's what separates my work from others because now we live in the information age where you can just type in how many episodes of Dragon Ball are there and, you know, you can see the number <laughs> uh, and you can go to the different uh, fan-based wikis and you can see content that uh, is pretty basic trivia, right? But to take that trivia and turn it into a narrative that is insightful and entertaining is difficult. And it's a skill that has to be honed. You don't, you don't just start out being able to do that. You have to really work at it. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of mistakes and a lot of help from people who care about you and want your work to be improved. Like the, I, do, I do the work myself, but I get feedback from people who care about me and it makes it a better product. And um of course the fans are amazing uh dragon ball fans i think are the best community uh out there because i i only interact with the nice ones <laughs> <You know? laughs> like the, the, the smart ones who are interested in learning and improving themselves uh that's a really nice little slice of the community that yeah. i get to engage with and and by the way listeners if you uh want to know what we're going to be covering over the next you know uh, decade of having a podcast. Just listen to that that long list of 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 things Derek rattled off. Um, but you mentioned, you know, uh, have you looked into Toriyama and the things he likes? And so that was kind of a question I had. Um, you know, while reading some of your books, it's it's pretty obvious that you are a fan or were a fan of at least some of this stuff. You know, Drunken Master or Bruce Lee movies like before you kind of came to Dragon Ball and came to uh, researching Toriyama. But I mean, what percentage maybe if you can throw a percentage on it of stuff were you a fan of and were you already aware of and what stuff did you have to kind of approach after the fact, after learning that he was a fan of it and you wanted to use it to inform your opinion on Dragon Ball? There was a good portion of it that I'd already seen. And so that's why I was able to recognize that content uh, in my initial watch of the series and in reading the manga. Like when you see Sergeant Metallic, you can see the Terminator if you've, <laughs> if you've watched the Terminator before, right? You have to have had prior experience with these movies and the the characters and like the stereotypes or archetypes 
that are in these films prior to watching Dragon Ball in order to get the joke or get the reference that he's making. But there are some things that will fly over most people's heads because they're so obscure. And uh, in those cases, I had to go back and watch the movies that I think Toriyama might have watched. And it was always a guessing game. So I had to do a lot of research into um, like the best Kung Fu films of all time. But also, I had to watch hundreds of terrible Kung Fu movies <laughs> that were so bad and generic and just I didn't want to watch them, but I had to in case Toriyama referenced them at some point. <laughs> and it was a lot of hard work to just sit there and watch a terrible movies. Um, but I also watched the American, um, American Film Institute's top 100 films uh, of all time, a bunch of sci-fi films, um, like a lot of a lot of weird Japanese movies and things that like the anime staff reference that Toriyama wasn't even involved with. But um, like there's a there's one I watched. Um, do you remember that episode of Dragon Ball where Goku is in a filler arc and he he meets this like fox who um, steals a car and like they're driving around and like trying to get to this airport? Uh, I don't remember that. Actually. Okay, yeah, it's really it's a really obscure yeah, character that nobody ever references. Blank on that one too. <laughs> yeah, it's like Dombey the fox, I think. But um, he's like this green fox character. Well, anyways, he has this really strange manner of speaking in Japanese where he calls everybody Aniki, which means bro. He's like, hey, bro. Hey, Aniki. And so, and what I found was that this character was referenced, uh, was a homage to a character in a classic Japanese uh, like spy assassin movie and uh, from like the 60s in black and white. And it's just those little, little references that you would never have guessed were in there unless you had seen the movie prior to watching that episode or reading that chapter. And uh, Toriyama does that a lot uh, in the manga. And like for, he'll, he'll just do it with, without telling anybody. He'll just take these characters' likenesses and put them in there. And he never, you know, explains that that's what he's done. Like a, a good example is with Tao Pai Pai's character being uh, based off the villain from Snake and Eagle's Shadow. Uh, he just uses his complete likeness and uh puts him in there and he's based off a real person from these movies from from these jackie chan mm -hmm. films mm -hmm. so uh you kind of have to have watched all of these things and uh then you you burn them their images into your brain and then you go and watch dragon ball again or you read the manga again and then you see if there's a match and you have to do that with every single panel of every page and uh <laughs> It's a, it's a lot of work. And then you have to be able to explain it to people in a succinct manner. Right. Especially because Toriyama will use it as a, a throwaway joke or a single moment or, you know, I mean, I, I don't even remember this Fox character, but even thinking of characters that maybe some people might remember, like the, uh, the, the two monks who give Krillin a hard time and recognizing that they are, you know, possibly stand-ins for like Frankie Sakai. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's <laughs> the amount of work to go in to just find a, a, a single reference is. is... Yeah. <laughs> and even even simple references like uh, Dracula, you know, like there's a Dracula character standing in the crowd uh, in one of Goku's, you know, fights. It's like, well, OK, if you if you know who Dracula is, then you'll get the joke. But if you don't, then it's going to go over your head and you're going to wonder who this weird looking character is. And so I've had people like read my book and they didn't know who Dracula was. I'm like, how do you not know who Dracula is? 
But that's because we grew up hearing about Dracula and watching Dracula movies and things. And so did Toriyama. But I'm like, oh, you're right. I have to explain who Dracula is, don't I? Because there might be some readers who didn't grow up with that. Yeah. So knowing what to... I mean, you basically have to just include everything because yeah. you, you can't editorialize really of what's important or not important to point out. That's exactly right. I make the presumption that the reader knows nothing when they start reading my book. So, I, I will not assume that you know something and then I skip over it because then you'll be lost. And I like to bring, I like to educate readers and bring them up um, from nothing all the way to having a really thorough understanding of Akira Toriyama and Dragon Ball and the world that he created. I, and I appreciate that, honestly, because I'm, I'm one of the fans that, even though I love the show, um, I didn't really initially look at it with a very critical eye. And so, to see all of these different layers of, of references that go into this and how much work he put into it really opened my eyes to just how wonderful a work this really is, honestly. Well, that's great to hear. Thank you very much. So, you, you go down this deep rabbit hole of, of films and, and all this different uh, philosophy and what have you. You collect all this information. You want to put it, like you said, into a, a coherent narrative. Um, but what's the actual, like, physical act of writing like for you? Like, do you have a set number of hours per day? Do you go through, like, uh, formal layouts and outlines for this stuff? Um, like, how do you get from, okay, I have this idea to I have a book that's now ready to be published? Mm. Yeah, it usually starts with uh, an idea, of just a little seed of an idea. Like, I have a folder filled with Dragon Ball book ideas and I pick one that I think sounds promising um, and then I'll start working on it. Um, the issue with me though is my books are so thorough that they can take several years to write. So, and I'm at the point now where I realize like, okay, I actually, I have to start getting books out quicker uh, because the more books you have out as an author, the more you can earn. Because uh, even if you have a super fan, if you only have three books out, and then once they buy all three, there's nothing more for them to buy. So you have to get more <laughs> out, you know? And so it's like this ever constant process of uh, trying to get out more content while researching more content, while also managing your business uh, and trying to sign and ship books and manage your social media. And um, if you have translations going, like I do, you have to do that and you have to format them and you have to launch those books. And so, it really became this huge like multi-tentacled octopus thing or like spinning all these plates simultaneously. And I realized I need help. So, now I'm finally hiring some employees uh, so I can be more productive. Um, but it really all just starts with an idea, uh, like a little, I open up a little text pad, you know, notepad document and I start writing about something that would be cool. Um, like I'm looking through my folder and I see uh, a Dragon Ball food book, which is a, a, a cookbook that has all of the uh, Dragon Ball characters and the ones that are named after food. And then it gives recipes for those characters' food-based names. And it has like their pictures next to it, you know? I'll, uh, I'll just say this real quick. I would absolutely buy that book. Make well, that <laughs> me too. <laughs> oh, great. All right. Maybe I'll start on that one next. Um, <laughs> And another one is like Dragon Ball math. And so it's uh, math problems within the Dragon Ball world. Like how far can Goku kick 
uh, football? Or how far can Vegeta or Yamcha hit a baseball or something like that, you know? And you do physics-based problems uh, or math-based uh, equations for punching things and kicking things. And it helps people learn math, but, you know, through a Dragon Ball perspective. And I think that would be a lot of fun. Could Yamcha hit a baseball hard enough to crater himself? <laughs> <laughs> I think if Vegeta threw the baseball, it would crater him as soon as he hit it. Yeah. That's that's probably true. Yeah, so in the case of like uh, my first book, It's Over 9,000, it was actually, it went through several iterations. One of them was, um, it was just called Why Vegeta Hates Goku. And it was all about the differences in their perspectives and like philosophies and like Vegeta's pride versus Goku's nonchalant attitude doesn't really care about anything and that sort of got into more detail uh, when I started to look at it from the fans perspective of like why do some fans gravitate toward Goku while others gravitate toward Vegeta and then I got into the psychology of it and it evolved into becoming a book about introspective uh, analysis and culture and the environments that we grow up in and how they grew up in different environments even though they're genetically similar they're both 100 percent full-blooded saiyans who love to fight and and eat and and grow stronger what separates them is the environment that they grew up in and if goku hadn't bumped his head uh he would might have ended up and, and then being being raised by son gohan he would have been a completely different person while Vegeta grew up under, uh, you know, a tyrant father and then Frieza killed his tyrant father and became his tyrant adoptive father. And uh, really just brutal, like you kill or be killed kind of world. And um, and that's why when they clash, it becomes such an amazing fight. And then they end up becoming such great rivals and growing uh, with one another. And so it really, it didn't start out that way. It started out as just an idea of like, how can I explain why Vegeta hates Goku so much? And then it grew into something really um, grand and I think transformative. But it's only that way because of what Akira Toriyama put into the series to begin with. And I'm referencing what's already in there. And I think that just goes to show how talented he truly is. I'd, I'd have to agree with that one. Um, so we have a lot of uh, self-published authors as friends and, and listeners of the podcast. Um, what do you see as an author as some of the biggest potential pitfalls of writing, and how have you overcome them in the past? The biggest pitfall is that anybody can do it, and they are doing it, and they're putting out books into this sea of you know paper or, or digital paper that uh, it just gets lost. And if, if you publish a book, it has a high chance of never being bought. It's really sad. So the way I overcame that was by already having my own website, uh, the Dow of DragonBall.com. I had a platform and now they're called Authors Platforms. And so that allowed me to market it through that platform and speak 100, to 100% dedicated Dragon Ball fans. So... I wrote a book about something that already exists as a phenomenon and it's the, it's the world's most recognized anime and manga. So that really helps. If I had chosen some other um, topic that was less popular, I might have struggled a lot more. 
but it's still very difficult, uh, especially to do it all by yourself. It requires a tremendous amount of effort to build up a social media following on your own and to write articles on your own, and edit them and publish them on your own and do the multimedia and everything else. So, it's, it's a lot of work to be an author and to have an author's platform. But if you're passionate about it, then you can get an audience and people who will support you. Like I just had a guy buy the full box set of uh, Dragon Ball Culture uh, today and the same thing happened two days ago. And I posted about it on, on social media two days ago and then the guy on Twitter saw that and said, hey, I'd like to order one too. <laughs> so, it's really cool how that works now that I have this this following. But it wasn't like that way at the beginning. And it's still pretty rare now. Most people buy books through Amazon. Um, Guilty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Which I, I'm grateful for, of course. Um, it's always fun to log into Amazon and see another number uh, tick up uh, in the sales. Uh, but I, and I like seeing the reviews. Most people are really positive with reviews. Uh, as a self-published author, you kind of when you start out, you don't have a reputation. So, getting those reviews is extremely important. So, if there's anybody out there who's listening to this and has read my books but has not reviewed them, please take a minute to review them uh, or, you know, do the same thing for other authors that uh, you enjoy reading because it really or makes Or podcasts that you enjoy listening to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shameless self-promotion. Yeah. Count one. Yeah, it's the same idea. <laughs> you know, it really helps. It's the fans who make it possible. Agree with that. Right. Uh, were there any assumptions you had going into becoming a writer and then once you actually were published uh, uh, that changed those assumptions? Hmm. No, not really. I don't, I don't tend to make assumptions in general. So, I don't really have any assumptions that I can think of except for maybe one. Sometimes people when you're reading online about being an author, they say, you know, all you have to do is sell a few hundred copies or a few thousand or whatever, and you can make a good living. It's really not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It will require a lot of sacrifice and uh, you're going to have to lose in other areas of your life in order to become an author. Unless you just somehow hit the gold mine right at the start with some kind of huge success. Um, it's going to be tough. It's been a real labor of of love, but emphasis on the labor part um, <laughs> that has taken decades of, of work and and counting uh, to to produce these books. Because I don't want to put out poor quality content. I really try to emphasize the quality of my work, and I am self critical and I, I self edit. So there's a constant struggle of thinking. Uh, this is good, but it's not good enough. And a little bit of perfectionism in there. And so, I'm working on that. I'm trying to let that go because I want to put out more content that people are excited about. Because um, there are a lot of Dragon Ball fans out there and they, they want to read this. Okay. Yeah, so, you mentioned editing a little bit and then along those lines and, you know, talked about maybe some kind of changes you might have made to kind of how you approach things. When, when you come across a piece of information, if you do, if this ever happens, that um, maybe contradicts something you wrote about before or 
if, not as not as dramatic as a contradiction, but maybe sheds new light on it. Or if there's a minor correction to make uh, that gets pointed out, maybe something as simple as like a, a misspelling slipping through the editing process. How do you approach that? Do you uh, ever do revisions to your books? Do you address it on your site? Do you do, do you append things? Uh, I'm curious how you how you kind of approach that situation. Yeah, it depends on how how big of the edit it is. If it's really small, like a typo, I'll try to fix that as soon as possible in the eBooks because it's it's free for me to update the eBooks. When it comes to the print books, I usually get charged to update those, um, and so I'll try to do them in like a batch, like a bunch of them at once. Uh, when it comes to a contradiction or some type of new information that comes to light. I believe at the time of publication that everything I say is 100% accurate and factual and based off of all of the sources that I have available at the time. If something changes later on, then I will try to make an amendment or like put it in a footnote or something. Uh, but in most cases, at this point, the book has been published and that's it. Like I have to, I have to move on to something else. Uh, but I make a note so that if I do a second edition, I can update it. Um, for example, there was in the, in my first book, came out in 2012, the term Frieza Force uh, had not been used yet uh, in an official Toriyama, you know, script because it came, it was, it, it was marketed during the resurrection of F, right? right. But like it, it had become like, so then I had to go back in my sort of like update the footnote and i sort of did that for the italian edition that just came out uh because fans now are familiar with that term but it wasn't a thing back in the day okay um so th this question i feel like we've talked about it a little bit but I am curious, and it might be this might be a little bit more for fiction authors, but I but I, I am curious. Have you ever had anything that you wanted to put into a book and had to edit out for any reason? Right? I mean, I know you said you wanted to be you always want to be thorough and not really omit any facts or information, mm -hmm. but you know, are there are there anecdotes you've had to to cut out for some reason? And and if so, can you share maybe what one of those notable ones was and why you had to leave it on the cutting room floor? Sure. Yeah, that does happen. Um, sometimes you write something and you think it's really good and then you come back to it like three months later and you realize it's not good <laughs> and it needs to be cut uh, even though you thought it was amazing at the time. So getting that distance from it is helpful. Um, other times somebody asks you not to publish it. Like you'll do it. I've done interviews with Dragon Ball voice actors and they tell me something really juicy that i think fans would love to hear about and then they go oh yeah please don't tell anybody that and it's like <laughs> oh really because that was great <laughs> <laughs> and now i can't because if i did then i'd be breaching their trust and they wouldn't talk to me again like a normal reporter who let's say works for the washington post new york times or some other you know outlet if they got yeah. a scoop they would they would put it out on the on the internet and it would right. be published in the news and then they would get famous and people were like, wow, you got the scoop. But I can't do that. So I have to wait until I get the okay. And then this book that I've been working on for 10 years finally gets published and then people get to read it. You mentioned it before uh, that the reviews have been generally positive. And I've noticed that. I've been 
as I as I read these books, I log them on Goodreads and I throw a star rating on them and a, and a review. Um, I think I've I've reviewed at least one of them on Amazon. I need to go back oh, and probably review the others. Uh, when you get something that's maybe a little more critical or negative, even how do you how do you handle that kind of a review or that kind of um, comment? I tend to break down in tears. And I grab a pillow and I just squeeze it really tight. No, uh, I, I look at uh, them and I question why they judged it the way that they did. And if they provided critical feedback, then I'm grateful for it. Uh, but sometimes you'll have like a five-star rating and it's like four paragraphs long and it's detailed and thorough and eloquent. And then you have a one-star rating right next to it, and it just says in all lowercase letters, it sucks. <laughs> and you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, why did you write that one-star rating? It doesn't help me at all. And all you did was lower the average for the overall rating. Now, now fewer people are going to buy it. Uh, so it's a little frustrating because you're not allowed as an author to contact the people who wrote the reviews or write little comments and things. They removed that ability a few years ago. Uh, and now we have no recourse. And if we report the rating, uh, they say, no, it's in compliance. This is their opinion. The only, the only way it would be out of compliance is if they used a bunch of swear words or they put some kind of nasty picture up there or something that wasn't relevant to the, to the book. So there's really nothing you can do. And you just have to sort of take it with a grain of salt and carry on with your day. Um, and it's kind of ignore it, but it's just, it sticks in your, in your mind. Our, the way our brains work is we tend to remember the negative things more than the positive. So it takes like five positive things to balance out one of the negative things. And so every once in a while, it'll just pop into your head. And then you have to sort of reinforce the positive. So I have a folder that I've labeled motivation where I put positive comments that I've received from fans all over the world. And it's really nice to just go there once in a while and open it up and read the nice things people have said. Like, I love your work. It, it inspired me to work out harder or it gave me insights into my childhood and it helped me better understand why I love Dragon Ball so much and why my friends love it and why we still love it to this day as young adults, um, like in our thirties, why we're still watching it every day and talking about it on podcasts and, and uh, you know, drawing fan manga and original characters and things like these books help me understand myself. And when I read those, I forget about all of the, the negativity and, and careless comments that sometimes people make. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so let's shift topics again here a little bit. Let's, let's actually talk about some of the books now. Uh, so the two of us are relatively familiar with Dragon Ball culture as well as some of our listeners up to this point. Um, we use it for a bunch of our research, and we've mentioned you a couple times already uh, in just our few short months here. Um, we're going to be plumbing all six volumes for sharing with our listeners in the future as well, but um, do you have any plans or hopes to continue that series? Uh, I know your website lists at least a part seven as being a potential future installment, but is there uh, still a plan for that and perhaps maybe even further installments? Yes, there are plans for that. I am still working on Volume 7. There was actually an early uh, edition that came out that should never have been published, but it did, It did, and like eight people got it. And it's like 800 pages of rough drafts. 
that were published <laughs> in wow. Vine, Volume 7. So um, that was a mistake with my distributor. Um, we didn't cancel the book. But those eight people have got it, and I'm still working on refining the rest of it. Um, but the the cool thing about this Volume 7, it's all about the anime. So Volumes 2 through 6 are about the manga, and then I go into the anime story and the origin of that and all of the culture that's in the, the filler episode. Uh, but it begins with exclusive interviews with the composers of the uh, Dragon Ball intro and outro themes. And I, I taught myself Japanese and then I interviewed them in Japanese and uh, also spoke with the, the lyricists and the vocalists uh, to gain their insights into these incredible themes that we've listened to hundreds of times. And uh, I think that'll be a really valuable add to to the experience of uh reading volume seven and that's why it's taken so long and it's just and there's just so many episodes um is that uh is that shinsuke kikuchi that that you uh i uh, no, or? i wasn't able to interview him before he passed away yeah. um I, he does all the music for the inside of the episodes right but a different right. composer did the the beginning and the, and the ending themes um, I asked to interview him, Shitsuke Kikuchi, but um, nobody that I spoke with knew how to reach him. And then he passed away, and I was really kicking myself because that was my, you know, I I tried, but I couldn't get access to him, and now he's gone. Yeah, he hits he hits my uh, my personal background because he's the he was composer for a lot of the old school Gamera movies also that's right super familiar with those so yeah he's so talented and and he was the perfect choice for Dragon Ball because of all of the Japanese superheroes and the monsters and everything else that's in it he was just such a perfect choice and I feel like people who don't mesh I guess with the Japanese soundtrack could possibly be because they're also not familiar with the work that inspired it. There was just so much that went into the Dragon Ball anime because it was made for a Japanese audience, for you know, by Japanese people uh, who grew up like Toriyama with these classic, you know, Godzilla type films and uh, uh, Kamen Rider and just like Ultraman and all these other great series that uh, he was he was like. Oh yeah, he's he's the absolute best pick you could have ever had for a composer. Uh, but to get back into the rest of your question, I also will be doing Dragon Ball Z culture, and Dragon Ball GT culture, and probably Dragon Ball Super culture. Um, but there's just like there's there's so many other books I'd like to do uh, a Dragon Ball sound book all about the sound effects in the series. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you could do a Dragon Ball Babes book with hot babes doing <laughs> doing cosplay, you know? That would sell. <laughs> I know. It's not as uh, intellectually satisfying, I could say, but uh, I know there's an audience for it. That's why it's on my list. Uh, okay. Uh, one more question for Dragon Ball Culture. Well, I'm kind of cheating a little bit. It's a multi-part question. Um, so which one of uh, those books was your favorite to write? Uh, which one, if any, did you feel like just sort of flowed out of you easily? And maybe uh, which one gave you the hardest time in terms of laying out and pulling together? Again, if if any of them apply. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that was the hardest was Volume 3, Battle, 
where I had to reveal the complete origin of the Tenkaichi Budokai uh, in in real world history. That one took a lifetime of work, like decades of um, martial arts experience and historical research to just delve into the history of martial arts tournaments that were on Ray's you know, fighting platforms and the fact that it goes into ancient Chinese history and and then the fact that Toriyama combined that with Balinese Hinduism and based the whole Tenkaichi Budokai, you know, uh, temple off of a Balinese temple based off of his visit to Bali uh, prior to the writing of those chapters. It was just so involved. And on top of that, I had to explain the history of martial arts and self-cultivation and the idea of um, improving yourself in a spiritual manner through this physical art form that really becomes um, a meditation in motion and the self-development of uh, the chi the that in Japanese has been called ki. And all of these interwoven elements that, that Toriyama just illustrated so seamlessly that you would never have even guessed were in there unless you already knew the symbolism or had like when you start out you don't know any of this stuff then you see one piece and then you you start to unravel it a little bit and then you start to see a second piece and a third piece and that's when you start to see a pattern i had to be very careful in explaining the symbols that were there and connecting them to real world culture with actual citations so that people wouldn't think I was just making stuff up and then tie that back to the source material and to Toriyama and the reasons he put it in there in the first place. I made a conscious effort to try and make it as easy to understand as possible, just like Toriyama did with his manga. Cause that was a, piece of advice that his editor, Kazuhiko Torishima, gave him. He said, make it easy to understand because you're writing for 12-year-olds and they are not going to understand complex subject matters or situations. And so, I took that to heart and I tried to uh, apply that to everything that I write. So, that was a long answer for the hardest part, <laughs> uh, but it really was a struggle. And um, I guess the the inverse was what the part I enjoy the most, and it was probably writing about Toriyama in Volume One, because I relate to him in a lot of ways. I remember I was listening to a previous episode where you said that you related to him in in uh, not wanting to be around people or <laughs> uh, being a procrastinator oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and and doing things at the last minute because you have a deadline, and I can. I can relate to that as well, and that's how I was. That's how I was growing up, and I also like making models. Uh, I I put Warhammer models together, and I paint them. And I play with them uh, with my friends. I've been doing that since I was a kid, and um, they they recently got me back into it, and it's a lot of fun. Um, so I can I can understand Toriyama's mindset, and doing the research, I got more into what he was into, and what I realized over time was that. Toriyama has created his perfect world in Dragon Ball. The Dragon World is Toriyama's world. It's everything that he enjoys in life. It's filled with uh, kung fu and sci-fi and superheroes 
and dinosaurs and big giant monsters and silly jokes and perverted humor. And it's bright and colorful and fun. And it's lighthearted. It's a place where Toriyama can escape to. Yeah, Tor- Toriyama is definitely one of those uh, not uncommon among creatives who is outwardly very different than his creation. You know, he created this world where it's very inclusive and bright and colorful. And it's it's generally a lot of the characters are very outgoing in the show. And, and he's just not that guy, you know, in his real life. And I mean, that's just Miyazaki is like the most miserable person on earth. And then his his uh, his creations are such beautiful, gorgeous, you know, peaceful landscapes a lot of times. And then, and then you have like Akio Jisoji, who is this like bright, fun, uh, bubbly kind of guy who creates these like nightmarish things, you know. So, yeah, it's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, it's that contrast of opposites I find so fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are we are wrapping up a little bit here because, uh, you know, we like to just make sure we're not taking up too much of our listeners time. Um, real quickly, um, I've got like two or three more questions. Um, sure. Let's just talk very quickly about the state of the Dragon Ball franchise right now. Uh, do you keep up with the manga? Do you keep up with Super Dragon Ball Heroes, uh, the games at all that are coming out? And what do you think about the forthcoming Dragon Ball Super Superhero. Uh, I'm excited Super about the film. I've seen, I've of course, seen all the movies. Um, I'm really glad that Toriyama is still writing them. And I think it looks awesome. I see people being naysayers about the animation style, but I think Dragon Ball leads the way in, in every release. It's always doing groundbreaking things. Uh, whether it's the use of 3D technology or CG effects, uh, even even back in the 90s, they were they were doing things that other people weren't. And this form of 3D animation, it's I mean, we already know you know Western animation companies have, have you know exceeded uh, our expectations with that, and now we're seeing anime companies doing it, and they're making it look like a manga in motion. So I think it's gonna be really cool and. Toriyama wrote the script, so it's going to be it's going to be funny, and it's going to be entertaining, and we're going to see new transformations, and we're going to see uh, the next evolution of the series. And I think it's a great time to be a Dragon Ball fan. We're in the second renaissance of Dragon Ball right now. Uh, we had to go through decades of of nothing, and mm-hmm. uh, thanks in large part to Dragon Ball Evolution, Toriyama is now involved with the series again. So I think we should be thankful for Evolution uh, for being so bad that Toriyama got involved. And uh, now we get to talk about it and brand new content coming out every month. I think it's really amazing. I'm a I'm a lifelong kaiju fan, um, which I don't at all talk about on every single episode we have. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, the same thing happened with Godzilla, actually. The 1998 movie with Matthew Broderick came out. It was so bad. Toho brought Godzilla out of retirement early and a bunch of movies that had never been released in the U.S. got released in the wake of that because there was an audience that was hungry for uh, content, you know, for Mm. Godzilla content and not this sort of bastardization of it. So a bad thing can beget a good thing very often. That's very true. Right. Right. So uh, make a quick list here. Godzilla. Mario, Pokemon, 
Hello Kitty, Dragon Ball. I think, I might be wrong, that most people could or would agree that these five franchises stand as the biggest pop cultural exports from Japan, especially in the United States. And there's obviously others in each of those sorts of milieu along the way, like Ultraman or Power Rangers or Zelda or Metroid, Doraemon or Kuromi, uh, One Piece, Naruto, Demon Slayer. I mean, people can argue about what's the best. And, you know, these things have all kind of traded off in terms of which one's the most popular at any given moment. But those five, Godzilla, Mario, Pokemon, Hello Kitty, and Dragon Ball, maintain a sort of stature among uh, Americans specifically. I mean, my 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 90-year-old grandmother knows what Dragon Ball Z is. Yeah. And granted, she calls it Dragon Balls. And she says, oh, is that that Dragon Balls thing that you like? You know, but, yeah. but she's heard of it, right? Sure. So what do you think it is about Dragon Ball? That makes it stand shoulder to shoulder with these giants, some of them literally, of the industry. Uh, also, a quick no. I would add Gundam to that list. Uh, okay, good call. <laughs> yeah, because Gundam is massive. Um, but why is Dragon Ball so successful? Well, I, I think I made a pretty strong case for it in my my books. I really think it's the culture. I think it appeals to everyone across the world. Um, because there are other series that have big, strong men punching each other and screaming at the top of their lungs, but they're not as popular as Dragon Ball. So it's not just the action, right? And there's other mm. funny series that uh, it'll make you laugh when you watch it, or they've got all kinds of perverted uh, fan service in them, right? But they're not as popular as Dragon Ball. So why exactly this one series becomes so successful and you really have to look at it from a, a perspective of worldviews and i think when you do that you'll realize that it has everything that everybody likes all at once and it's done so seamlessly that you don't have to think about it it's presented in a manner that's easy to understand and accept and it's funny and entertaining but it's also heartfelt it takes you on this lifelong journey of these characters that start out as children and and grow up through so much hardship uh, to the point where they can eventually have their own families and children and then their children go through hardships. And you're going through that journey as you watch the series in your own life. You know, you're, you're experiencing it. Like there's so many people uh, I've spoken to throughout the world who felt a connection to Gohan because they were getting picked on for being nerds or and they wanted to fight back and become strong and then they and then they did somehow and it's like wow okay so this series is so much more than just entertainment there's there's really something going on here you know and and if you go to latin america you'll the the voice actors are treated like a-list celebrities because Mm -hmm. everybody over there loves Vegeta and Goku and uh, especially in Brazil it's just it's just massive and there's there's so much beyond just uh, what we grew up with in America there, there's this similar story repeating itself uh, in every country where Dragon Ball uh, airs or is published it's really a series that speaks to people's hearts and the way that our minds work as human beings as like products of culture and our environment and the patterns that we see in the world around us and it gives us meaning and purpose like this idea that we can 
grow and become stronger and and literally transform our minds and bodies into becoming supermen or, or women and and people who like I, I did you look at Frieza and he's like is is that a man or a woman is it transgender <laughs> there's somebody who, like that appeals to everybody you know regardless of how you self-identify there's somebody in Dragon Ball that you can identify with it's really transformative like that uh, and powerful and and Toriyama just put all of this in there because that's what he liked. He wasn't, that's this is the most amazing thing is he wasn't even trying to change people's lives. He just wanted to entertain Japanese boys and do that once a week because that's what he liked to do. And even his editor, Torashima-san, says Dragon Ball is meaningless. There's no greater meaning to it. There's nothing. It's just pure entertainment. And it's like, are you kidding me? Did you listen to everything I just told you? You know, like... But that's what, that's how he feels about it. Because for him, it was just a product. You know, they weren't intending right. to transform people's lives every every day and around the world, but they did, and they continue to do so, and that's why it's so successful. Right. That's a that is a whole uh, can of worms. The 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 inherent value or lack of value whatever that god i would i'd love to talk to you for hours about <laughs> honestly like yeah. um because i i don't think it's like a super open and shut yes it does have a lot of value or no it doesn't right i think i think the answer is somewhere like it's kind of both you know um just because it, it is for kids right so when people do get um <laughs> sometimes like a little too i don't know i don't know what the word is but like people get a little too hung up on the the structure of it you know and the oh that was a that was a lazy bit of writing or stuff like that and you're like this is for children like it, mm. it's 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 meant for a child to be able to understand so you have to you have to just be willing to admit to yourself that you like something that's for kids. <laughs> and I mean yeah. I'm okay with that. Uh, it's just a lot of people kind of aren't and that's I mean god I'd love one day we'll get you back on here and we will have like a whole episode about that. Okay. I mean. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> um, but we, like I said, we're wrapping up. So are there, are there any plugs that you'd like to give? I know you're working on a whole bunch of stuff. Is there anything you've got sort of impending? Um, any, anything that you want to throw out for our listeners to be able to find you, um, buy your books, uh, look out for some new project you got coming down the pipe. Yeah. You can find me at Derek Padula on social media it's d-e-r-e-k-p-a-d-u-l-l-a and of course my website the uh i just published the second volume of dragon ball culture in spanish uh, all my books are available in ebook paperback and hardback and i'm going to be doing some audiobooks soon and um like i said i've got french and portuguese coming out and i just keep plugging away um i'm hiring some journalists i'm going to be adding news articles to my site uh so we're going to be getting probably three to five articles a week about the latest dragon ball news so you can come to that and uh keep up to date on that on the really important stuff and it's not going to be made up stuff like you see on uh some websites i won't mention uh <laughs> where they just spit out garbage every day uh, this will be actual real Dragon Ball news that you are uh, interested in and will care about. Um, and I, I'm just trying to grow my my platform and get you know more Dragon Ball fans excited about the series and help them better understand the series and also themselves. Because I really think 
Dragon Ball is a tool for introspection and growth. And it can be simple entertainment, but it can also be a, a way for you to look within and develop yourself and persevere through hardships and become a better person for your sake and for the sake of everyone around you. And I think that's a really special gift that Toriyama has given us. And I feel that it's, uh, like I said, it saved my life and I wouldn't be around right now talking to you if it weren't for Dragon Ball. So that's my way of uh, giving back. Excellent. Um, well, Derek, we really appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us. And yes, thank you very much. Like I said, we have I have so many more questions I would still like to ask you, but we do try to be considerate of our listeners' time. We we usually are wrapping up uh, in under an hour, actually. But you know, I let this go because uh, I thought it was a really good discussion. Well, thank so you hopefully, very much. hopefully, you're up for coming back someday and sure. and talking to us again. Um, you know, maybe when I don't know, Volume Seven is finished or something. Uh, but even if not, you know, even if 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 not, I would I would like to have you back on someday, and we could talk about uh, all the things that that we didn't get to touch on here. Sure, um, yeah, it's an endless discussion. Dragon Ball is endless and, and wonderful, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. So uh, we'll let Derek go, and we'll take our leave of you here as well, listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us on this special episode of the podcast. Will we continue drifting aimlessly through space? Will we read some of Derek's books to help us pass the time? Rhetorical question, that's a yes. Find out next time, except I already said yes, and help us achieve our final forum. is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share it with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. <laughs>